0: Collective Insights is a voyage through topics and technologies revolutionizing human well-being. Groundbreaking approaches for a better world and a better life await you. Welcome to Collective Insights. Collective Insights and the work we do at Neurohacker Collective is made possible from the support of our community and the sales of our product, Qualia. Qualia is a comprehensive mental enhancement supplement designed to improve focus, mood, and flow state. Learn more about Qualia at neurohacker.com and use coupon code COLLECTIVEINSIGHTS for $20 off your first order.
1: Welcome to Collective Insights. I'm your host today, Dr. Heather Sanderson. I'm a naturopathic doctor and serve here at Neurohacker Collective on the Medical Advisory Board. I'm also the medical director of my clinic, North County Natural Medicine, and I am absolutely delighted today to have Dr. Marcy Axness on our program. Dr. Axness is an early development specialist and the author of a book called Parenting for Peace, Raising the Next Generation of Peacemakers. Her book's premise is if we really want to change the world, we need to raise a generation who are hardwired with the brain-based capacities of a peacemaker. These are things like self-regulation, empathy, trust, imagination, and of course, intelligence. Her work synthesizes and distills leading-edge neuroscience and child development research, weaving it into relevant consciousness research findings, spiritual wisdom traditions, and even quantum physics, to suggest the rudiments of a new paradigm for rethinking early human development, and to offer practical guidelines for thoughtful people striving to become conscious parents. <sighs> now, I have to say, Dr. Access, as I was reading your book... Um, I thought about it from not only the perspective of a pregnant mom, but also as a child
2: of someone who suffered through having parents.
1: <laughs> and yeah, so, I mean,
2: <laughs> we were all we were all children. We were all babies. We were all conceived and carried in wombs.
1: So, yeah, exactly. So when I was I was reading it really for my own interest, and then. I, as I, you know, just reading the introduction of your book, I saw the overlap with how much of what we care about here at Neurohacker and through collective insights about how do we create potential, the highest potential possible for not only the next generation, but even for this generation. So um, that was why I reached out to have you on the program. So welcome. Thank you so much for jo- taking the time to join us. Oh, I'm so happy to be here with people who are
2: interested in the brain. I love that. So tell me, how did you get into it? Well, you know, I have to confess that everything I've done professionally really had its seeds in my own personal experience as an adopted person who was raised in a, you know, not that healthy home, and then went on to have my own babies. And, you know, one day as I was kind of whipping a hand towel against the counter in the powder room because I was so frustrated with my baby, you know, so that I could just drain off enough of the, uh, you know, the activation, which you guys at Neurohacker probably use that word. Um, or trigger? So that I could, would trigger yeah, so, be another word for that? Yes, yeah, so enough of the rage, enough of the activation that was going on in me by all kinds of triggers that at that point I didn't really know and understand so that I could just sit with my baby on, on the floor and play with blocks. That is really what led me, you know, pulled me in, in a way like kicking and screaming. I have said motherhood brought me to my knees. Mm-hmm. Um so, you know, I really, that pulled me into an investigation personally, which led me into a scholarly, you know, exploration. I went to, back to school, I went to Union Institute and University, and I got my doctorate in a very interdisciplinary degree that really spans all these different fields, which, of course, makes me completely unsuited for employment at any conventional institution of higher learning, I might have, because they <laughs> like people to fit in those boxes. You know, you are a sociologist, you are a psychologist. And I really, when it came around time to write a book, it was actually my daughter who was in her teens at the time. I knew I wanted to write a book. And she was, but I knew, you know, we don't need one more parenting book on the shelves at all. And so we were, we were talking about it, she and I, and out of that conversation came the idea of parenting as a social action, or as activism, social activism. And that's what kind of ignited that idea. That's really how the book grew. So you have a Ph.D.,
1: but over and over again, I see that you claim your best credentials are that you are the mother of of Eve and Ian, your two children. And that, yeah. that th- they are both grown and flown, flourishing artists yeah. and uh, contributing to society. And I yeah. love this part of your story where you came out of a less than ideal parenting situation as, as a child and really turned that around. So. That that inspiration that that is such an inspiration, right? That we aren't, though we are a product of our parents, we have the power and potential to to shift that for the next generation and for ourselves. So let's dig into that, if you don't mind. Um, sure. How how do parents affect brain development, health, and human potential of
2: their children? Well, um, you know, this gets into, first of all, I like to really start out by saying DNA is not predestination. I mean, I'm, my children are a living uh, proof of that. DNA is more like predisposition. One analogy I've used with my students is if, and this is old school, okay, this is back when we used maps, what a quaint idea. But like, if you had a car um, with, with a map in it to Las Vegas, and you get the idea, let's go to Las Vegas, if that map is there, you were a little more likely to take the trip than somebody who didn't have that map. I mean, that's a pretty good analogy for uh, genetic um, coding and DNA. So of course, we're talking here about the great nature-nurture debate, and it really, of course, is not a debate. It's a dance. Um, it's an interactive collaboration that takes place throughout the lifespan. And there are windows of development where genetics, where where nature, DNA, leads, and then there's others where nurture leads where the environment and its cues come in very strongly to interact with that genetic um, download and so throughout life they're working together in unison taking cues from one another and elaborating and weaving on what each one calls forth in the individual so this is
1: like the epigenetic nature of how things are expressed based on the inputs from the environment, whether that's nutrients or stress. And you go into a lot of the research on that in your book.
2: Yes, absolutely. You know, here's the thing. And I want to say that I learned this from from someone that I'm sure you're familiar with at Neurohacker, and that's Bruce Lipton. Absolutely. He's been a guest on the show. Yeah. Well, he's a dear friend and he was a wonderful mentor. He offered to be a- a little, little known secret. He offered to be on my doctoral committee and I ended up needing to get somebody who was more specifically prenatal development oriented. So, but I got the best of both worlds because Bruce was always available to me. So I learned this right from Bruce. Nature's job, I mean, nature's overarching imperative is to create organisms who are going to flourish as well as possible in the environment in which they're living. And so nature is always responding to what the cues are in the environment and adapting. It's a very, ultimately, when you boil it down, it's really quite a simple concept uh, that nature wants to make the adjustments in the individual that are going to allow that person to do as well as possible in their environment. Mm -hmm. And that cueing and adapting starts way earlier than we used to think. It starts in the womb. It starts as that fetal brain is forming in response to the environmental cues of what is life like um, Mm -hmm. as mommy is downloading it. I mean, this is really the, if you, I, I often tell pregnant women, just imagine your baby is continually asking what is this world like, mommy, that I'm going to come into? Because I'm preparing to be as well suited as possible for it. Great. And so how to be
1: as well suited for the world that we live in. There's a couple passages I just want to share with our listeners from your book. Um, there, you, that Some of what you take from Bruce Lipton, this idea of that we need for humanity to sur- to survive at this point and indeed thrive only by will only happen by embracing and cultivating the abilities needed for interdependence and unification unification suggesting that as Bruce Lipton puts it survival of the most loving and so how do we get there? How do we get the most loving children? How do we create ourselves despite what maybe our parents did to us when they raised us? How do right. we become those the ones that survive as the most loving creatures on earth?
2: Right. Well, that is classic Bruce and of course that's he's you know he's jumping off of the the age old survival of the fittest, you know, which was Darwin's Big famous thing, but you know, Bruce is talking about Darwin had follow up research where he really found that this interdependence is a really driving um, force in natural selection. So how do we how do we create the most loving um, generation and make ourselves, you know, sort of reinvent ourselves day by day into more and more loving? Individuals. Um, first of all, I'd like to bring it down to a really practical level. I mean, that is beautiful, but it's pretty philosophical and it's pretty high level. Uh, what we're really looking to do is, is to foster the most well wired brain possible in our children and in ourselves. Um, but let's face it, our children's brains are incredibly malleable. It's a lot easier to create a well-wired brain of a young one than to change our brains. You know, the old teaching a dog new tricks, the big, one of the big exciting pieces of news from the decade of the brain in the 90s is neuroplasticity. And yes, we are not fixed. And yes, our brains can change really until we're in the grave. And that's wonderful, but it's a whole lot easier As, you know, the famous quote goes, it's easier to build healthy um, children than to repair broken men. Right. I paraphrase slightly. It's not quite like that. So, you know, really, we're talking about when we get really, really practical and nuts and bolts about it, we're talking about this little region of the brain called the orbital frontal cortex. And, um, you know, uh, uh, Siegel, Dan Siegel, one of my many teachers. He uses a model in the palm of your hand. He uses a model of the OFC as something as being in the palm, yeah, your brain in the palm of your hand, and this is your OFC. I won't go into that. I'll let Dan do that if you ever talk to him. The point about the OFC is, it's um it turns out that it, this this little system. It's not just a structure. It's a system in our brain's right hemisphere. It is really what I call the human being success center. It integrates emotion with cognition. It's able to weave together the past and the present. Uh, It's responsible for common sense thinking. It's responsible for how being able to read people's signals and, and, and feelings, you know, that what we call EQ intelligent, I mean, emotional quotient, um, that Dan Goleman coined. Um, It's really about the skills of being truly human. And it also, it's sort of the clutch, if you will, of, of that, um, the whole right hemisphere, it takes all of the stuff that's coming in from outside the information sensations, feelings, uh, memory, well, feelings come from the inside. So it takes all the stuff, information, and stuff from the inside and and is, puts them together in a way that makes sense, that fits, that has meaning, and that allows us to feel like we fit meaningfully into our surroundings. So the OFC is this brain headquarters for all of the capacities of the peacemaker that we're looking to foster. And so... A lot of my book really is it's kind of what I like to call a scientific blueprint, taking all of the science for how do you create a well-wired OFC um, and and putting it together in a sort of a more practical way. Um, If I had to boil it down, you know, my book is based on seven principles, and the first of which is presence and, you know, that word gets thrown around a lot. But if you know someone who can be truly present, that's a proxy right there for healthy OFC development. And so just start right there. As a, as a parent, as an as a, as a adult child of, a, of <laughs> parents, are you able to be present? Are you able to settle and just be here? That's becoming more and more of a challenge these days in the wired world. Right, with and that, technology. Yeah. Mm-hmm. And that's a whole other piece. And that's a piece that actually isn't in my book. Because interestingly, 2012 is what Jean Twang Twenge, Twang, I don't know how to pronounce her name, who studies the effects of the smartphones on generations. On Actually, she studies generations in general. But she's really zeroing in on how has the smartphone affected uh, Generation Y or the Millennials. Um, and 2012 was the tipping point at which more than 50% of people owned handheld devices. So the research wasn't rolling in yet when my book came out, but it is now? <laughs> do you have thoughts
1: about that now? What do you, what are your thoughts? What is the research saying um, oh, yeah. currently about our ability to be present in such a technologically driven world?
2: Yeah, it's. Um, I actually about a year and a half, maybe two years ago. Time flies. I started a blog series called Wired Wednesdays, exploring our digital dependence, and I've probably written the equivalent of a book just in those blog posts. Um, yeah i mean to just a couple of nutshells that's one of the reasons i i decided to do a blog series because i wanted to just tease out it's such a huge almost ungraspable issue right and it also has an aspect of the fish in water thing asking a fish to describe water mm-hmm. you know once once you're in it it's kind of hard to step back and and uh Unwind and unpack these different effects. So that's what I've been trying to do a couple of nutshell findings is it's really really clear. It's not even up in the air anymore. The more time that people I'm not even going to say kids people spend on social media over and above there is a tipping point. It's about two hours and 15 minutes or something. There's sort of this break point. Um, so if you're on for two hours a day, that still seems alike a lot, but I guess it, it hasn't shown huge effects, but boy, you get above that. And that's when the rates of depression, anxiety, and just general, the opposite of what we're looking to cultivate
1: <laughs> qualities,
2: right. Zoom, you know, skyrocket. And does the
1: type of media that you're consuming or the type of interaction that you're having on social media say, does that influence how debilitating it can be? Or like if you're playing violent video games versus, you know, connecting with your peers in a, in maybe a more positive way, does that affect things? Well,
2: yeah, I mean, I, I, I've just really been looking, you know, the video game piece, that's kind of a separate, a separate thing. I'm really looking at the more garden variety, you know, what you see people doing in line at Starbucks, you know, because that's, that's so much more pervasive. I mean, yeah, I guess there's a lot of people who do violent video games, but it's sort of a subset. I'm looking at like this is that 50% and more who own handheld devices. You know, it was one thing when you had to go home and sit at a computer to go do all this, right? Mm-hmm. But now it's it's in your hand. And um, so it's, it's kind of like, you remember good old Marshall McLuhan when he said the medium is the message. In this case, I think the medium is the insidious effect it is an inherently kind of a multitasky kind of thing it's and of course i'm sure you at neurohacker hacker know that there that multitasking is a myth <laughs> there really is no such thing as multitasking um it's rapid um what do they call it rapid uh unit rapid um I forget what they call it. You're basically like a pinball going between tasks and not doing any of them very well. But I do have a section. There's a couple paragraphs in my book about some really fascinating research they did at, I believe it was Cambridge University, on um, the effects of autopilot, of doing things on autopilot which is what a lot of times we do when we are supposedly multitasking you know what i mean um and and so but they find what, well they found that um very rapidly you know they had a they had a guide you want me to describe the the experiment please yeah i'm fascinated okay. So they had a guy wired up, you know, with all the, you know, electrodes and everything so that they could map his brain activity. Mm -hmm. And they had him with a keyboard learn a, I think it was a four or six number sequence. And he he had to start out from square one. And basically every time he'd hit a wrong button, he'd get a certain, you know, like a loud, whatever, a, a wrong Some sort of Um, negative response. Yes, exactly. And so we just had to keep working at it till he figured out this sequence. Well, the whole time that he was working at it, the opposite of autopilot, you know, his brain was just lit up like the Empire State Building (laughs) on 4th of July. And um, so once he had it, they told him, keep doing it until you can just do it without thinking. So he did. And as he did that, sort of the lights started to kind of go down. And then they asked him to do something else while he continued to do the keypad. And it was like all the lights went out. Now, but to me, the most instructive part of that research that is most tangibly practical, um, good news for all of us, is that when they asked him to go back to doing the sequence as if he were f- doing it for the first time, in other words, re- be mindful about it. Mm-hmm. You must talk about mindfulness a lot. Yeah. Really sink himself into that, that activity completely. All the lights came back on. And to me, that is the great news about that piece of research. And so that's, that's why I include it in my book.
1: Okay, that so is that would be yeah, the, this illustration of presence. That instead of being in that multitasking on autopilot, that we bring our awareness to whatever it is we're doing, and it sounds like this can happen a
2: lot in parenting. Well, that is a perfect way to come back from to back to to the question of how w- parents can really most effectively. Um, you know, create these well wired brains. Um, Because I have to say, you know, it's a, it's a win win, this idea of, you know, raising a generation for peace, because not only is a vibrantly healthy child like that, really a joy to parent, then later, you know, like you were saying, with my kids, they go out into the world, you know, ready to um, confidently innovate solutions and be that you know peacemaker thinker that that we're hoping that we need for mm-hmm. uh, you know, need in our world and even for people who aren't parents or uh, you know aren't even planning on being parents like you said all of this feeds into your own evolution on a daily basis and by understanding these principles anyone can be part of what i call the evolution solution you know, beginning long before they have children or if they never have kids. Um, One of my favorite guest kind of guest lecture opportunities I used to do was I would go into um, a high school biology class and, you know, talk to them about prenatal development, about the power that they have during pregnancy to, you know, like I was saying, create this well-mapped brain, starting even in pregnancy. But, you know, as I would get towards the end of the class, I because they were just eyes that shine. I mean, they were so turned on by this information. But then I said, look, you don't have to wait until you're ready to have a family to put all of these principles I'm telling you about to work. I I took a nice long, um, dramatic pause. I said, you're all pregnant right now and you know you say that to a group of 16 17 year olds <laughs> they're like ah you know they get all blushed out and whatever and then i talked to them about this idea of cell regeneration and this is all in the book because to me this is another piece of really practical good news and it's also something i really wanted to tr- i tried in my book to not put out a bunch of stuff that you can read in any old place. I mean, I really tried to bring news that has come out, but somehow didn't get quite the play that really it deserves. And this is one of them, cell regeneration. I think most people don't realize that our cells are regenerating constantly. Taste buds only live for a few hours. That's why you can reform your palate so quickly, you know. White blood cells live for about 10 days. Muscle cells live for about 90 days. And red blood cells, they last the, long, the longest. They last for about four months. So, you know, the students were really fascinated to learn that about 1% of their cells die and are replaced every day. So, meaning that at a cellular level, we have new bodies every three months. Now, that's at a cellular level. But you can see it in action. Have How many of you and your listeners have noticed how amazingly rapidly presidents age in four or eight years,
1: right?
2: Right? Well, I describe, you know, using a little analogy of parking cars in parking um, spaces, the concept of cellular um, uh, receptors in our brain. And and how they can change in response to what the environment is is asking of us and it goes back to that principle that breeze taught me that that nature always wants to make her her creations as well suited to the environment as possible so you mentioned that i talk a lot about stress in the book i do stress is a very probably one of the most potent and insidious environmental uh, messages and as ubiquitous as our smartphones, right? <laughs> oh, absolutely. And they come and, together. Yeah. By the way, the smartphones do cause stress too. There's, um, it, you know, if your listeners want to go to my go to my website, parentingforpeace.com, they can see right on the front page where they can go and read some of my, you know, some of my Wired Wednesdays blogs. And, um, you know, there's one in there. I I, I kind of uh, summarized. When Anderson Cooper did a sixty minutes um, segment all about how these tech companies absolutely are taking talk about neuro hacking, they are taking neuroscientific research and using us using it to get us hooked. They kind of set up like a little stress and then they relieve it. It's And it's all these micro responses that happen in our brains at the, you know, in our reward system, our pleasure reward system. But word on the street is that they keep their kids out of the schools. that use all the tablets and they put them in Waldorf, right? That, well, that's in my book. You read it in my book. That's, oh, where, you, that's where I got that. Work's not on the street. No, but no actually, book. I have seen Word on Facebook and stuff. Yeah. I mean, evidently, Steve Jobs did not let his kids have um have uh, you know the i the tablets when they came out and you know, yeah, all like that. So I listen. I don't envy parents of kids of young kids today. I feel like, whew, I missed that one. You know, mm-hmm. it was for us. It was just TV screens and you know maybe video games. And how quaint is that? But um. So but back to this idea of you know how stress can change the receptors in your brain, just like your your receptors do change with all of the sort of um, cues and responses that happen with a smartphone. The way stress works is if you've got so much stress, uh, you know, stress hormones circulating in your system without abatement, and I mean relentless, um, let's say you're a president, <laughs> um, what will happen is nature wanting to accommodate environmental demand is it will take some of the receptors that are set up for other things like, oh, you know, cellular repair and things, you know, that we want, you know, who knows, you know, the things that that are not essential to life and they will uh, get rid of those receptors, and they'll create more stress hormone receptors. And this is how you see a president just age so incredibly in eight years. To me, that's the best example. And unfortunately, I, these are the things that
1: get turned off, like creativity and yes, all of the what we want to cultivate, right? This peacemaking, this ability to find creative solutions to connect and
2: be present.
1: So Absolutely. Really I fascinating. mean, fascinating.
2: Dan Siegel talks about that a lot in his mm-hmm. books. He talks about the the low road. I mean, when we're under stress, um, we end up on the low road. We we do we lose access to our higher our higher thinking centers. You know, here in California, we have a lot of wildfires. Here's one little example that where I put my understanding of. You know, neurofunctioning to use in a practical way. We have a lot of wildfires, and I used to live in Malibu Canyon, and we actually had to evacuate a couple of times. So now, knowing very well my own brain and my own sort of low threshold for stress. I have made a very detailed list of things that I would take in an evacuation, because I know very well that access to those higher thinking centers absolutely get cut off under stress. It's how we survive. I mean, you know, if we had to see a charging tiger or, you know, and and, and sit and think about things in a creative way, you know, humankind would never have survived. Right, right. You know. And I see
1: this in my practice a lot. People who are under constant chronic stress, it affects their hormones. It affects their relationships. I mean, there's nothing that it doesn't touch. Now, you mentioned at the beginning when we were talking that – a fetus inside of a woman as she's pregnant is asking the question, mommy, what is the world that I'm going to come into? And so if she's under constant stress, that yeah. baby is then going to be hardwired to expect that stress in the world. And then Absolutely. through parenting, kind of more of the same. That can get more further and further reinforced. Well
2: so, Oh yeah, go ahead. Yeah. Well, I just want to say here's one uh, one point on which adoption in a general sense, is so instructive about prenatal and perinatal development, because in adoption, which is one of my fields, um, very often the situation, as I put it, it's like the baby has been packing to land in Beirut, but instead lands in Bermuda. Oh, wow. Okay, Okay. It's as if you were packing to go to a war-torn land, and you land in this lovely place where they're offering you umbrella drinks and uh, you know, saying, "Please lie down, have a massage." And you're like, "What? What? What?" You know, you're not wired for it. Mm. And this is one of the huge problems in adoption. You have adoptive parents who just want to love this baby. And depending on, you know, this is I'm broadly generalizing, but it's fairly safe to say that a crisis pregnancy that is bound for adoption is probably. Uh, you know steeped in a certain amount of stress my I certainly w- was my mother was and she had a pretty good situation as they go um, so yeah so I just wanted to throw that in there because mm-hmm. when there is a mismatch see the thing is if there's not a mismatch between prenatal and postnatal instruction, things actually in an odd way kind of can go smoother mm-hmm. if that makes sense. Mm-hmm. I mean,
1: well, that's probably how it's designed, right? This divine design is preparing this new human for a stressful environment. And so again,
2: nature wants its creatures Mm -hmm. to survive. So if you've got a lot of stress in the womb, it's sort of like an animal example I give is if there's a giraffe that's um, pregnant during a very heavy lion season. And so they're having, you know, she's full of stress all the time so that that baby will come out ready to run from lions. Yeah, that makes a lot of sense. I want to go back. You mentioned that you have seven
1: basic principles that you share in the book and presence was number one. Do you Mm -hmm. mind going through
2: them? Sure. Absolutely. There's seven principles and then there's seven steps to apply them at each, you know, at each step. So it sort of ends up becoming like a matrix, I guess, or yeah. um, Starting preconception and going up until adolescence. So the principles are awareness, Uh, uh, presence, you already said presence, awareness, rhythm, which is a very well-kept secret or little-known secret to parenting a really well-wired brain, Um, example, which we should really get into because that's one of the prime ways that parents can uh, raise a well-wired child, Um, nurturance, which is pretty self-explanatory, nurturance, Trust and simplicity, and I love it because this is an acronym for parents. Well, how else would I ever <laughs> be able to remember them all when I'm being interviewed? <laughs> That's so, great. Yeah. So, do you want to add anything about presence? Um, no, I think I think you know you brought it back with that mindfulness. You know the you know when we were talking about that um, that piece of research they did at Cambridge, and when they asked the guy to bring his full awareness. Back to just pressing those numbers, his brain lit up. If we can remember that, I mean, that's a very vivid image for people to keep in their mind to, to know that when those lights are on and when you can be present with your child, that is a kind, that's a nurturance right there. Um, you know, children, they, they are nurtured by our presence, by our engagement, just as much as they are by their, you know, mother's milk. Right. Attention I mean, is a form of love, right? Maybe absolutely. the highest
1: form of love is giving someone your full, full attention. And I think this is sort of a prelude, I, I hope, into example, setting an example, right? Yes. So, A, awareness. Is that
2: right? Awareness. Awareness, that? Uh, to me, awareness just kind of covers all the book learning, you know, like like people who are listening to this podcast right now are, are you know, adding to their awareness. You know, it's just understanding, you know, a, a huge one uh, for parents is understanding a child brain development and, and that, a, that a four-year-old or a five-year-old is not a miniature adult, but we do in our culture tend to treat them that way. And I mean, parents are kind of pulled off point in At every turn, really, by our culture and marketing and, you know, they're in in many different ways. They're they're given this message. You're not quite enough. But if you get this system or this product or this kit Then maybe you have some hope of meeting your parental responsibilities. And there's kind of this idea that if you have all the options in the world, then maybe you're doing
1: better than somebody else, right? That if if your kid can choose from 164 different colors of crayons versus four colors of crayons, that that's a better off kid, right? And you you argue that maybe that's not the best thing, that asking your child, what do you want to eat? Versus saying,
2: we have, you know, greens or salmon <laughs> well, tonight. <laughs> that is one of the, you know, one of the pitfalls that parents do fall into. Uh, you know, when it, I, it's an epidemic, I, as I see it, just giving the young child, I'm talking about young kids now, way too many choices. And, and that is, you know, to bring it back to what we're talking about stress, that is a form of stress for the child. Um, because The child, the young child really wants a calm, loving, confident leader, you know, and that's and and we go wrong. I see parents going wrong all the time on this. The more parents I've worked with, the more I realize how many of them experience life with small kids as a series of like tactical maneuvers and crisis management incidents. (laughs) You know, it's just, uh, you know, putting out the next fire. And it's not their fault. they you know, our culture really seduces very well-meaning parents, okay? I these are all well-meaning parents into doing things that really can suck the joy and the peace and the healthy brain development right out of parenting.
1: So what would you suggest around that? a, a day-to-day interaction with a small child,
2: what does that conversation look like? Well, let me let me give like a nice overarching piece again learned from Bruce Lipton. If people just take away one thing that I say today, this could very um, valuably or fruitfully be it because it informs every moment of their lives. Um, and it's this at every moment, we are either in growth mode or we are in protection mode right down to ourselves We're continually checking those environmental messages, those environmental cues, and asking, are conditions safe and secure so I can grow into my fullest potential? Or are conditions threatening and insecure so that I have to protect and I have to limit my potential and expend my energy to defend myself? That's going on all the time. And also with your kids. So, you know, like i said that the young child really wants to know that you know with confidence what's supposed to happen but in our culture you know the wildly you know from in the 50s it was this very authoritarian my way or the highway. Just do it because I said so. Sort of thing. And then it swang all the way over to really permissive in the 70s. You know, super permissive parenting. We don't want to crush their spirit. And it's really never swung back into balance. I don't think um, it's sort of all over the map. But we do. There's this this misguided idea that democratic parenting. Uh, you know, giving the child too much of a say. In what happens in the family you know too much what i call it's too much um negotiation explanation and justification for every little thing that happens and what this does is it makes the young child insecure because they don't feel they have a leader if you've ever watched C- uh, caesar milan you know the dog trainer oh yeah if anybody yeah if people understand that that whole principle of being a pack leader You've got it ninety percent knocked uh, in terms of parenting the young child. Let me just make sure we're we're comparing parenting to training a dog. (laughs) Well, this is why I don't say it that often. (laughs) At the level of the brain, just the point of view that the dog wants a a pack leader, and this is and the child wants a leader. Okay.
1: Yeah. And this makes Uh, a lot of sense because if the parent is giving all the authority back to the child and they're not ready for it, then that creates this sense of stress and the the uh, child is going, wait, where's
2: my parent? Absolutely. And what happens? That's when the child becomes difficult or as I often hear a handful, (laughs) Mm -hmm. (laughs) because think of it, if you're in a situation where nobody's in control, let's say you're on, I don't know, you could be in a tour or at at some event or whatever, and nobody's in control, you feel that you need to start controlling because nobody's Mm -hmm. driving this bus. I mean, this is how a lot of young kids feel. Nobody's driving this bus. I guess I better. And that's when, you know, sort of these behavioral issues can become an issue. So, you know, drawer and pick out what you want to wear. It's which pants would you like, this one or this one? You know, it's it's not what do you want for breakfast? It's would you like bananas or strawberries on your cereal? And it's not a choice every 10 minutes, you know, because I do hear parents do that. Um, I use the, I mean, just kind of loosely, rule of thumb, the, the old rule that they used to use for birthday parties. Um, they used to say, invite, you know, if your child's turning five, you can invite five people plus one extra. So, I kind of use the same thing for choices. You know, for a three-year-old, give them like three or four choices in the course of a whole day. I've heard parents give that in the course of an hour. Yeah. Because, and it's entered, it's really entered the collective in a very insidious way. And the sort of, sort of, I don't know, uh, conventional wisdom, quote unquote, is that it helps them have a sense of self and whatever. But if you've studied Magda Gerber, like I have, um, what you learn is that there's, you know, most parenting missteps, they they err not in, in the content of what they're doing, but in the timing. Very often, parents give the young child way too much say in what goes on in the family, and then they flip it, and you know crank down the, the 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 locks on the adolescent the preteen and the adolescent when really developmentally it needs to be exactly flipped so that's where the awareness piece comes in parents need to understand really what's appropriate thank you so yeah from an
1: awareness perspective i think that that's very counterintuitive or, or maybe not counterintuitive but different from what we're we're taught and what we see Societally, Is that we, well, we are encouraged to give
2: more and more choices to kids. And because we don't want to, you know, th- th- I think, you know, s- somehow that specter of the 50s parent is still so strong in our consciousness that we don't want to do anything that even smacks of that, right? Mm-hmm. Um, but, you know, I'm talking about a whole different animal, I'm talking about being the calm, authoritative leader. And I've seen such transformations happen in parents I've worked with, going from sort of a, you know, oh, what well, do you want to do this? Or do you want? Oh, should we do that? You know, to this is what we're going to do now. And you just you can practically just feel the child just like, ah, oh. they can relax and be in growth mode. So awareness, uh,
1: thank you for sharing that um, that <laughs> nugget. Uh, I think there's a lot of parents who could use that and probably a lot of children who experience that potentially who can look back and say, hey, my, my mom or dad gave me a few too many choices. I have to tell you that another hat I kind of put on as I keep reading your book is the one of... I have patients or colleagues or friends who share an experience of their parenting and I have so much more compassion for their perspective because you can see how their parents kind of got it wrong and so that the wiring is just a little out of touch and maybe that's influencing some of their behaviors or some of their health outcomes. And I think part of my point is that even if you're not ever considering having a parent, there's so many insights in your book around how much parenting is both a privilege, but also just this huge responsibility. And there's so much potential in it for better or worse. So, yeah. It, yeah. yeah, yeah,
2: and, and I think, you know, I touched on it a little earlier, this pervasive lack of confidence that I see in parents. And, um, you know, I, I mentioned that there's so many messages in our culture, in the media, conveying that, you know, you're not quite enough, but if you do this by this, um, you know, usually it's by this.
1: Mm-hmm.
2: Um, so that can really shake confidence and create a lot of stress and doubt around parenting choices, but something else that can really undermine confidence, and I'm talking about down to a cellular level, really, is exactly what you just said, when we didn't receive the kind of parenting that we're trying to give our children, that can really set up a stress. And that's where I was that day that I was whipping the hand towel against the counter. It's like I was... At least you were whipping it against your child, right? Well, yeah. <laughs> yeah yes, exactly. Um, but, you know... Again, I, well, I didn't say this, but I will now. I was, you know, the always gleaming, hyper-achieving, from the outside, look great, mom. I wore J, great J Crew. I made my homemade baby food. You know, every anybody looking at me was like, "Oh my gosh, she's," but but I was just struggling so much. I was really tr- kind of scraping from an empty well, and that that is what can happen when a parent is trying to flip the script really from how they were parented. And I would have to say that I would bet that the majority of parents that I've seen in my practice are, would fit that bill. You know, I think when you're in practice, you tend to attract, um, similar people as yourself. And, um, so I've seen, like I said, some just really beautiful transformations, um, uh, because yeah, it sounds it, like
1: there's this dedication, right? You're attracting a group of parents who really are dedicated to doing the best they possibly can, whether that that means making the whole new baby food or wearing J. Crew or whatever it means for them. But reaching out to someone like you who can help them be the best parent possible, I guess, is consistent with that, right? There, that's the awareness piece again. So, right. tell me about rhythm.
2: Um, let me just oh, set, leave one. Do. I want to leave you with one daunting comment on example. <laughs> um, Basically, this is the question to ask yourself. Look in the mirror each day and ask yourself this question. Am I worthy of my child's unquestioning imitation? Oh, wow. (laughs) I know. It's really a, that's a, that's a blow you back in your chair kind of a thing. Yeah. I thought you were going to end with love
1: (laughs) and that was going to be an easy one, but imitation.
2: (laughs) The thing is whether or not you answer yes that that is what's going to happen so better you kind of confront that reality now um, Rudolf Steiner who developed Waldorf education he was a brilliant thinker in many 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 fields he had like four PhDs or 13 PhDs I don't know he was like crazy brilliant he used to say people um, um, uh, your children learn most about uh, learn most from who you are when nobody's looking. Mm-hmm. So, you know, that's that's just a, yes, just a bright spot to leave you on with example. <laughs> you know, you do,
1: your book is sprinkled with quotes from people like Rudolf Steiner and Einstein and and some of these really, really great thinkers. And I, I love that because it, there is so much inspiration. The goal here is to create more of those great thinkers, right? And that here at Neurohacker, you know, we, we love Becky Fuller and Da Vinci and Einstein and Edison and Tesla and all of these people who – and Rudolf Steiner certainly who have contributed not just in one – not just in medicine or not just in in gardening – not gardening, uh, um, Rudolf Steiner. Permaculture. Permaculture, right. Well – Biodynamic um, agriculture. <laughs> agriculture. Thank you. That's the word I was looking for. So not just in one area or one field, but really on a whole systems base, they're elevating the conversation about how can we do this better and not yeah. falling into these boxes of, well, this is how I was taught. This is the convention. But no, kind of saying, let's take a step back. Let's look at, um, from a wider perspective. How can we elevate the entire conversation, all of society,
2: all at once and really solve problems on a, on a much greater level? So- right. And what I also want to throw in there that it's so important that listeners know about my book, but about this idea in general, about this, you know what I said, parenting as a social action. It's not just about you know how can I make it better for my kids, but also for myself. How can I find more joy, more uh, aliveness? on a day-to-day basis, because again, that is what's going to feed your child. You know, my kid didn't care if I wore J Crew, and probably didn't care that I made homemade baby food, but he probably, you know, I, I know that there were issues that there was this divergent between who I was deep down inside where I'm hitting the, you know, the, the towel on the counter and who I am like with the face on. And, you know, I I have to have compassion for myself. A big part of this is self compassion. Every and so I don't want the the idea to be like this is how you're going to improve the product of your child <laughs> at all. This is just about up leveling the experience for all of you each day. So in let's the moment. go back to those things that the the child cares about. So presence, mm-hmm. awareness. Rhythm was the next one, right? Oh, yeah. Rhythm is just such a boon to parents. And this comes right out of Rudolf Steiner. This, you know, I learned all of this as a, as a Waldorf mom. Um, children thrive, the young child I'm talking about. When I say young child, I'm talking about up to about seven, because they are a different creature under the hood. Their brains are, are just really operating in a whole different way. They thrive on rhythm, daily rhythm. This is when we eat. This is when we sleep. Those are the two big tent poles. This is when we wake up, when we eat, when we sleep. Um, you know, but weekly rhythms, you know, Wednesdays we go visit OMA, you know, Thursdays we go to the farmer's market, whatever it may be, things that to us as adults may seem monotonous and boring that kind of a rhythm, that regularity, that rhythmicity is absolutely like nectar to a child. And particularly when we're talking about all of these, you know, all this technology, and I think there is a little, there's more of a discursive nature to just everybody's consciousness. Really powerful kind of antidote, if you will, or at least like a, a mediating influence Did I just freeze? You're good. Okay. Uh, Like a a, um, kind of a remedial influence around all that is rhythm, is to make the home rhythm just so, so strong. You know, and come on, parents, it can make your life so much easier once you get over this idea that it's boring. You know, if you just have the same thing each Tuesday, Tuesday is pasta night. Wednesday is, you know, meatloaf night or tofu night or whatever it is. Your kids are just going to like it's just feeding them at a level that you you can't see but it's that OFC food man so rhythm, just having that predictable
1: rhythm that they can they can count on. It, it sounds like that sort of goes back to what you were talking about in awareness around not having quite so much authority or decision making. That this decision sort of already met or made, and there's a leader who's driving the bus, so that they don't have right. to worry about what's for dinner on Tuesday or where they're going on Sunday.
2: Absolutely, and this is this is um, Bruce Perry. I don't know if you've had him on or if you know about his work, but he's one of the leading. Uh, he's a lead leaders in child trauma, and basically, he talks about you know how external regularity and predictability predictability wires in the internal rhythmicity and regularity, and that's what you want. You want a a well regulated brain how amazing. and then And then there's more capacity, I guess, to be
1: creative and to be intellectual and to to get into these other other realms,
2: oh, absolutely. I heard Stephen Colbert talking about, and I think it was on a podcast about the, sort of the, the way that this was on his old show, but I'm sure it's similar on his current show, um, how all that creativity happens. And, pe- and he says, yeah, people, I think, just think we're all loosey goosey. He says, no, you have a really firm structure. And it's within that, that the creativity can happen.
1: Interesting. So then um, example is the next in our parenting acronym.
2: Well, we have. Yes. So we have, we did talk about that, you know, ask yourself each day, am I worthy of my child's unquestioning imitation? And, um, you know, if you can get that, if you, if you really can swallow that one and get on board with it, you're going to be miles, miles ahead because watching, you know, example modeling, you know, is what they call it in psychology. Um, That is the number one form of learning throughout nature. And we are animals. We're human animals, but we are animals and we are part of nature and we are no different. Watching and modeling is the number one form of teaching and learning. And I, I have to reflect that what's coming up for me
1: is uh, when you say that in like gulp, ugh, like my frenetic energy and checking my phone and rushing around and constantly, you know, taking too much on and these things that we do. They're, I guess, I, I want to go back to having compassion for ourselves because. Yes, well. Hey. Th- I think that's the most, it's brought up the most stress for me of anything that you've said as I think yeah. about parenting. It's like, imitation my child will imitate me and mm-hmm. and wow like you there is so much responsibility in that
2: listen i will tell you well first of all i i'll say that i have seen i think a lot of parents that i've worked with moms especially uh unsign up their kid from three activities a week or themselves i mean i've seen a lot of people slow down um so for whatever that's worth. But, you know, children don't learn from our perfection. They learn from our striving. Okay. So we're not going for for perfection. It's striving. It's the fact that you're even thinking about that, Heather, you know, about that in the context of your own life. And um, what else did I want to say when you said that? Um, yeah, they... Um, yeah, I, it went out of my head. Maybe it'll come back, but yeah, that is the most potent form of teaching. Our children will imitate us. And that's a lot of times the most, um, uh, what do I want to say? Bracing moments of our lives is when we, maybe not tomorrow, maybe not next week, but maybe in three years or five years or 10 years, suddenly you're going, oh my God, that's, me that was me that is me Ah. (laughs) they are our most powerful
1: mirrors is it that similar moment when you look in the mirror you say something you're like that was my
2: mom yeah well there you go and so you know part of this awareness of example and all these principles it's power it's on the one hand i know that there's yeah i i know for a fact that my book made it to uh the view Got handed to the view by by the husband of a you know by by a, one of the producers whose husband I met in a taxi cab in New York City, and um, so I know for a fact it got looked at at some point, and I think that a common sort of politically correct response to my book, if somebody just thinks they know what it's about, is oh that's just putting more stress and guilt on on parents and especially mothers, and you know, it really isn't that it's power. It's giving you power. Um, Because if you can, you know, if you can weather the, the blow blowing back in your chair, you know, um, of learning some of this and just sit with it, you know, just why don't you as part of your self compassion, Heather, right now, just say, I'm not going to make any drastic changes, I'm just going to sit with this and see what authentically, might bubble up for you as maybe a slight adjustment.
1: You know, it, and I think a lot of people say this about parenting: is you learn so much about yourself, right? That the, their children teach you more than you teach them, probably. Um, mm-hmm. And and so it is this invitation to delve deeper into self growth and and um, just trying to be the best, uh, fulfill our potential, right? So yeah. the N. In the parent acronym, did you
2: nurture, nourish, nurturance? Nurturance. Um, oh yeah. Um, this isn't something that. Just back to example. If you, I think this can also help us with that concept. Uh, Aristotle said this: "We are what we repeatedly do." I th- I love to look to some of the ancient people, you know, who were talking before smartphones and stuff. So. Um, Nurturance is really just all the different ways that we, that we love our child, you know, and it can take so many different forms, the color we paint their room, the books that we choose for them, um, the foods that we serve them, you know, it's all you know very ripe opportunity for for showing nurturance. And it's funny because nurturance appears in some dictionaries but not in others. <laughs> But I love it as a word. So it's everything
1: that they would consume visually. So the environment that they're in, foods
2: they would eat, books they would read, the people they're surrounded by. Absolutely. Um, And, and, well, and, you know, everything that nurtures them, really. So, you know, it brings in your presence. Your presence is one of the biggest forms of nurturance there is. Um, But yeah, everything, everything that they're surrounded with. And again, I, you know, sometimes, I don't know what it is, when I go to Target or go to the mall, and I see like a six day old baby, I just, I, I just... I wish I could just jump into the parent's mind just for a second and and just whisper the idea of what what is it like this environment through brand new eyes and ears and skin? You know, I mean, I just, you know, a lot of times the baby will be asleep because the sensations are just so strong that they, you know, it's like the nervous system is overwhelmed and just sort of shuts down. But, yeah, every form of nurturing your child, that's nurturance and then the opposite right what,
1: what are the things that could detract like that and it sounds like maybe a trip to target is a little bit too much stimuli for 6 <laughs> year well
2: well yeah and that actually you know in in sections about rhythm uh, at the end of each step i have sort of bullet points of you know ways in which you can engage each of these principles at this step and i have a whole list of rhythmic activities and then i have a whole mm-hmm. list of anti rhythmic activities that sort of work against you know that that whole Sense of um, you know rhythm and that is so nourishing to uh, the orbital frontal cortex. You know, a lot yeah. of timing cars, media that's too adult. Um, you know, adult conversation in their presence. I mean, things that you know maybe people might not stop and think about. You know, and then the T in parents. Hmm. Trust. Trust is a really, it might be the most subversive thing on the list. I mean, you know, the baby monitor so we can listen at everything that morphs into the cell phone now that the kid carries. And then, you know, it's like, we're going to put tracking devices on them. You know, I really, um, I have real practical ideas in the book for parents even during pregnancy to start cultivating their it's like a muscle. Trust is like a muscle that will definitely atrophy when we rely on all these things. And, you know, I count myself in this. If I go, you know, if I leave the house and don't have my cell phone, like, oh, you know, we all know that feeling. Gosh, that's only in the last, you know, 10 years. So what did we do before that? Okay, well, maybe we made a call from a payphone, but we also, there's this idea of our intuitive faculties that I think, with the wired, with our, with our digital dependency, really, you know, I I think we let that aspect of our being atrophy a lot, you know, it, it doesn't get used, you know, use it or lose it. So we don't have to rely on our own, our knowing about that person's going to be home, I know it, you know, just because they don't have a cell phone, or they're not going to text me or whatever. So, and, you know, trust is something that, In order to parent in a, you know, in a really um, fruitful, healthy way, it does require a lot of trust—not just trust in your child, trust in yourself, trust in life with a capital L. Right. Yeah, and probably your
1: partner. I mean, there's a and the village that goes into raising children. Yeah, yeah,
2: yeah. yeah. One of the exercises that I give them is to think about the first days following conception you know because I, I do detail it in my book exactly what happens and i and i invite parents to go back you know as they're getting close to birth i i think i give it as an exercise for trusting the process of birth you know and and i i make the point if if you would have had to trust you know or rely on your own devices to make each one of these intricate developmental things happen you know, you would have been sunk. So know that there are forces at work that are bigger and that you can lean into and and trust. And then the S, parents. Uh, simplicity. Yeah, the more that we can, you know, take this little wooden spoon and let it be a scepter or a, or a flagship or a microphone, you know, as opposed to having more and more and more. The more we can rely on our own resources in a simple way. That brings so much. What I would, it brings an inner resourcefulness that counters what I was saying earlier about the lack of confidence that I see in so many parents. Um, you know, when we can rely more and more on our own resources, that, that counters that lack of confidence. It really builds you up and in a way that may not be conscious, you know, that you might not be consciously aware of and it sounds like it would probably
1: develop some creativity and ingenuity right if you have to Absolutely. think about that wooden spoon as a microphone and a scepter and a sword and whatever else then you don't yeah. and cuz you don't have a sword and a microphone and a scepter then right. um, th- then yeah you have to get creative and and build those neurotrans or those neural cl- connections excuse me and so so used to say neurotransmitters all day so this is that was in a nutshell, it sounds like this parents acronym is is the meat of a lot of what you describe in your book about how can I optimize the brain development, the health, the well-being, and the potential of my child. Now, if my parents weren't the greatest, um what what can I do to turn things around at this point?
2: Ah, well, um but getting back to you know what I was saying about cell regeneration and that we, we are always pregnant with our own future selves. So, um, to, to remember, and again, Aristotle said it beautifully we are what we repeatedly do. So, A, find models. Um, find models in your environment, in your memory, in your, um, you know, even in, in the media. Of somebody who you would emulate as a parent. For me, it was Blythe Danner. Believe it or not, I don't know
1: who that <laughs> she, is. Who's that?
2: Blythe Danner is the mother on Meet the uh, Meet the Parents. <laughs> Did you never saw Meet the Parents? I'm oh, my very well. I don't watch much. Oh my gosh. Okay. Well, she's also Gwyneth Paltrow's mother. Oh. Okay. Um, but she's she's a beautiful actress in her own right, and um, so she was mine. You know, just this model of like. The, the beneficent mother, and it, that's a kind of a fine line. You, you're not going to, like, put somebody up on a pedestal, but you just you – can, you can choose different models recognizing that, yes, you did experience certain shaping forces of your environment as a child, and as much as I um, applaud neuroplasticity and recognize that it is a thing – you know, I've been in a lot of therapy throughout my life because I had the childhood things, you know, that weren't great. And yes, there is huge healing to be had, but you also, but I also find myself having to be really um, patient and compassionate with myself, especially, interestingly enough, as I get older. Um, you know, I, I seem to, there seems to be a cycling back of certain little vulnerabilities, you know, at the, not just the brain level. You were saying, you know, we were, uh, I think, corresponding about how we talk about the brain kind of as, as shorthand for, you know, our whole um, neuroemotional nervous system experience, you know, so it isn't just the brain.
1: Which affects every single cell in the body.
2: Right, exactly. And memories we now know are not stored in the brain, like in little file cabinet, <laughs> you know, they are registered throughout, um, you know, n- nerve networks in the whole body. So it's a pretty complicated um, thing. And, and so, you know, I would say be gentle with yourself, and get real practical Um I actually, this is, I don't know if I'm getting ahead of myself, but I do have a a gift to give your listeners that speaks to exactly this.
1: Yeah, can you Um, describe it?
2: Sure. It's it's a little e-booklet and it's called Seven Ways to Rewire a Negative Brain. And a lot of times, you know, those of us who have some, you know, imprints that maybe aren't the ones we would have chosen... It, it, we can get into sort of a negative spiral, you know, a, a negative thinking spiral or a, a cascade of just less than fruitful um, um m- what do I want to call like pathways, neural pathways, that's yeah, what they are, patterning. you know, th- yeah, well, so you know, if, if you think about yeah, a nerve impulse, it's going down a little pathway that's very well carved in the brain. And that's mm-hmm. what therapy really is about It doesn't get rid of the old pathways. And I guess that's a shorter way of saying what I wanted to say before, it doesn't get rid of the original pathways. But what we do in therapy in any kind of healing is to create new ones. You know, make a different choice. Do you have and any thoughts? So you've you've talked about therapy. Do you have any thoughts about neurofeedback? Have you seen that be helpful? I, I think neurofeedback is a really um, a really good thing. The thing that I'm hearing a lot about these days is brain spotting. Oh, I'm not that, familiar with that. Can you describe it more? Well, brain spotting is a fairly well new in the last couple few years um, refinement of or elaboration to EMDR. I see. Yeah, EMDR. I've had patients get wonderful success with that,
1: as well as with neurofeedback. I mean, even psychedelics kind of fit into this category of how do we get this brain repatterning? And mm-hmm. a, a CBT, want, you know, aims to do that. The cognitive mm-hmm. behavioral therapy and, and lots right. of the other the therapies, even tapping, um, the emotional oh, freedom yeah.
2: technique. I've done tapping. I've done a lot of tapping. <laughs> yeah. Yeah. So there's um, a lot of
1: ways to get here. Would you mind listing the seven steps just briefly? Um, you don't have to give uh, away everything that's in the ebook. I
2: don't think I, uh, that's a, uh, yeah, I don't have it in front of me. No and so it comes right from the book though. So you can look it up since you have my book. So, you know, just letting your listeners know it comes right from the book, but it comes in a handy little thing. Um, and uh, I mean, here, I'll talk about a couple of it. I'll talk. Please. Oh, well, one of my favorites is comes from Constructive Living, which is I haven't heard anything about it lately, but it was a therapy model, really out of Japan, and it has this sort of precept: uh, accept your emotions as they accept your emotions as they are, and do what needs to be done. And I can't tell you how helpful that has been in my life. Um, you know, pick up a broom and sweep the floor. Sweeping is a very healing, kind of meditative activity. Uh, anybody who has access to a horse paddock, mucking a horse stall is one of the most soothing, calming centering activities. So doing the dishes. Uh, doing the dishes, that one, because it adds the um, sensory aspect of the water. And it's repetitive. And you can just, again, to the extent that you're able to be mindful, and I do talk a lot about mindfulness in, you know, in, uh, in the book, because it is a it is a, it's a presence practice is what mindfulness is, it really just bringing your all of yourself, your mind, your body, your feelings, to what you're doing in the moment. So A shower is a perfect place to practice mindfulness because that's where we all that's where we tend to turn on the water and then go on autopilot and think about our day or think about the day that happened or think about the, you know, the 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 fight you just had with your spouse or the discussion you have to have with your boss or whatever it is. And it's so it's an excellent practice to start building that muscle to bring yourself back to just feeling the water. And the thing is, and I I say this right in the book, a shower in so many parts of the world is a miracle. It's a miraculous thing to have hot, fresh water pouring over your body and then all these soaps and shampoo and scrub or whatever you've got. And so for us to sort of exit that Mm -hmm. mentally and be Mm -hmm. somewhere else you know, it's, I just really invite you to try it there. And it's a, it's an advanced practice because it's, you know, as much as you keep bringing yourself back next thing, you know, you're thinking about something else. So, um, yeah. So there um, are all these
1: invitations. I think there, there's a comedian, Louis C.K., I think he's the one that talks about yeah. um, <laughs> flying in a plane and how people are complaining about, oh, I don't have Wi Fi. I don't have internet. I don't have this. I don't have enough movies. I don't have all these things to distract me. And it's like, wait, but you're flying 30,000 feet in the air in this steel contraption, getting from one place to another in a matter of hours instead of months that it used to take, yeah. or, or, you know, just a couple generations before. And it's like, right. I, I love getting on a plane, not because I love going through the airport or TSA or anything, but like those moments where you can just be like, I I don't have access. I can't check my email. And this is, you know, the last couple of times I'm reading your book and (laughs) it's really taking the time to center and sit in the middle seat, whatever it is, and and just be fully present in it. Um, And so finding those invitations in day-to-day life is there are so many of them, right? It's the person you described in line at Starbucks looking at their phone or just being fully present, smelling the coffee and embracing all I, the
2: sensations. Right. And, you know, and um, we were talking, you know, quite a bit about stress. And one of the best definitions I've ever heard of stress is stress is wanting the present moment to be different than it is. Mm. I, I think that comes from uh, Eckhart Tolle. He that's said really that. succinct. And it's so true. And so that's where, you know, mindfulness can can transform stress. Um, I tell a story in my book about you know, again, we're teaching that growing fetal brain, what kind of world it needs to prepare for. And so if you take two pregnant women, and you put them into a long bank line at lunch hour, and then this teller, uh, the tellers just closed their line and put their sign up and leaving. And one woman is just absolutely frantic. She's already late for a meeting. And, um, the, the next woman is just doing what you just said. She's in line. She's looking at the interesting people. Remember that idea? Remember that people watching thing that people lo- used to love to do? People don't do it anymore because they have their heads down in their phones. Um, so, you know, basically my point in telling the story in the book is that you've got the exact same outer circumstances, but you've got a completely different download going to that fetal, to those two fetal brains. mm mm-hmm. And there's a
1: choice. Again, this goes back to that responsibility,
2: that potential, but then that responsibility to choose. There's always a choice, yeah. Mm -hmm. And sometimes when we're in a moment that's overwhelming, it doesn't feel like there's a choice. And I count myself among that. Sometimes I'm like, I'm just going to wallow and that's just the way it is. And that's okay, too. (laughs) But even that little witness that says, I know I'm wallowing, that is growth. That's the striving piece. You know, I said, children, you know, we and our children, nobody learns through perfection. It's through striving. And that's that piece is that part that knows, OK, I'm wallowing right now and that's OK. And then right, the later the will make we get that,
1: Yeah, that increase in that space between the trigger and the reaction. And then we can right. make that choice. I love it. Right. So, uh, you know, you have a Ph.D. You're a lot. Your book is very grounded in science and the neuroscience and and you made a point about how the brain entered the research picture in the 90s mm-hmm. and that this has been, you know, since then we've really physicalized what's happening in the brain. And you make an argument that there there needs to be some balance in how we interpret that and, and this research that is coming out about the
2: brain. Can you expand on that a bit? Well, yeah. Um, you know, once we did physicalize it it kind of made it more graspable for people. And suddenly it was a more tractable idea. And that's when, you know, we had all of these leaps forward in, you know, um, serotonin reuptake inhibitors, the whole chemical theory of depression, which, by the way, has not ever been borne out. I'll just say as a quick aside. We couldn't agree Um, more. (laughs) Um, So, you know, that brought more interest, more funding. And, you know, we've seen big pharma just run with it. Okay. so the pendulum, it it swang, swang, swung uh, a bit far out. And we ended up sort of collectively and culturally in what I call a a brainist uh, framework, right, Um, where everything boils down to the brain. And that also... Isn't great because we're so much more than our brains. I mentioned uh, just a, a little reference to memory and, and how we know that memory is not centered in the brain. Um, you know, within a brain centric framework, it's impossible, for example, to consider retaining memories around conception and pregnancy. But the fact that people do has absolutely been documented um Candace pert in her amazing book molecules of emotion she's the it was her team that discovered the, um, opioid, the receptors. In, opioid receptors mm-hmm. yeah um, she she points out that to understand the capacity of the body to retain life memories we have to keep in mind science's really pretty recent discovery of peptides of transmitters of hormones um, and 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 how they have receptors throughout the body. And so she talks about the distribution throughout the body's nerves um, having a very huge significance for this. And um, she writes, I believe, that Sigmund Freud, you know, were he alive today, he would gleefully point out um, as molecular confirmation of his theories, which was the body is the unconscious mind. Mm. Okay, so you know, just
1: bringing it back to uh, there is this temptation to go into a reductionistic mode to understand something, right? to understand oh, yeah. something like the brain that's so uh, so, so, so complex that it mm-hmm. would be a disservice to think that we ever could, right? Mm-hmm. And mm-hmm. but reducing it into neurotransmitters and brain waves and all of these that's things right. can be helpful. And then just reminding ourselves that, it, okay, it fits into this bigger context.
2: Absolutely. And I think that that is a really fruitful um, process to go in to zoom in and then zoom out. And I, you know, I'm known for zooming out. A friend of mine calls me metagirl, you know, I tend to really like to take a big picture. Um, But I know that people need really practical handholds. And actually, in the years since my book has come out, I've gotten better and better and better at crunching it down into practical things and the thing that you know one thing i want to say as we're probably getting close to closing out is that you know again this is this is for everyone not just for parents and that this is a promise of our biology we are designed to become you know we're we're evolving creatures right we're designed to become happier more intelligent more peaceful you know that's and that's what you know so much of bruce lipton stuff is about is stepping into this promised potential that we all have as members of the human species and
1: how can we contribute to that how can we make it go a little quicker right so yeah as we wrap up Thank you for sharing your seven steps, your free ebook. We so appreciate that for listeners. And that'll be in the show notes at the bottom. Um, People can click on that and and get um, a link there. And then where can everyone find your book, Parenting for Peace, Raising the Next Generation of Peacemakers by Dr. Marcy
2: Axness? Where can we find it? Amazon? Amazon. All right. Easy (laughs) enough. All right. And actually, for reasons I never did understand, you can actually read a lot of the book right there when you click on the you know peek inside you know peek inside as a sample i think it's the same uh, if you have kindle you know you can click on send a sample i think that same sample is what you can read online
1: okay and then is but, there yeah. an
2: audio version as well if
1: somebody wants to listen in the
2: car <gasps> that is a heartbreaking um, thing i was just thinking about i was just imagining a conversation with my publisher today about so i guess the audiobook isn't going to happen eh uh, it was in my contract but uh, i know hasn't been recorded yet okay it hasn't well, been recorded yet <laughs> hopefully in the future cuz
1: this is a dense book i'll say it. it's yes. taken me a while to get through but very
2: empowering And I want to throw out to people who are inclined to go and get the book, here is what I tell people when I'm, when I actually am at a, an event or, you know, when I have a chance to see a buyer, you know, who's not yet read the book. This is my author's recommendation for how to read the book, read the introduction and the epilogue, and then go to the step that you are either at right now or interested in. Um, It is a long book. It is a dense book. It is not meant to be a cover-to-cover read. It's Ideally, it's meant to be a 15-, 20-year companion. For people who start reading it before their parents, it could be a 20-year companion. Um, so yeah, I really want to stress that it is not meant to be a slim parenting volume that you can read cover to cover in two nights. That was such a relief
1: for me because (laughs) I was like, I don't know how I'm ever going to get through this before our podcast. So thank you for that permission to not read the whole thing cover to cover. It is
2: permission. It's a my, it's my fervent plea that people don't, (laughs) because then they'll just like get just, uh, you know, um, discouraged and overwhelm, yeah and overwhelm so I, the I, show. yeah okay, well thank you for that and
1: you do you do do events do you have any speaking engagements coming up where people could potentially run into
2: you oh you know what my I don't my next one is a keynote in Denver in next year oh, so good. oh so you can relax yeah. for the rest of the year uh, yeah I am yeah. a mountain girl living in the forest and uh simplicity you know. living simplicity yeah. Yes, I am. (laughs) Good for you. Is there anything else you want to add for our listeners before we sign off? It's so funny. I know that there was something that popped into my head when you were talking about how daunting the example thing was, and it never did come back, and I know as soon as we hang up, I will think of it, so I'll email it to you. You can put it in the show notes. Thanks, that's what we'll plan to do. (laughs) Marcy, it's been such a
1: pleasure having you. I've learned so much, and I know that our listeners have as well. It's been so fun digging into how we can all, how we were affected by our our parents, how we can affect the world and change the world through our children, and um, and also the awareness of of how all this works. So thank you for imparting this
2: wisdom on us. Oh my gosh, it was really a pleasure. It was a pleasure to be here. And yeah, I just, you know, send out a big virtual hug to all of you. <laughs> Thank you, Marcy. It was a pleasure. Thank you for listening to Collective Insights.
0: For the full show notes on this episode and for more great interviews, visit us at neurohacker.com slash collective insights. If you liked this episode, please subscribe to the podcast and leave us a five-star review on iTunes. Want to learn a better strategy for mental well-being? We designed a beautifully illustrated 32-page guide integrating care for your mind, brain, body, and environment into a balanced approach for a better life. Download the Foundational Guide to Neurohacking at neurohacker.com backslash guide.